Glad to be here with you this morning. Please turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. And before we read, let's pray together. Father, you are the great God and the great King above all gods. In your hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are yours also. The sea is yours, for you made it, and your hands formed the dry land. And we have come here today to worship and bow down, to kneel before you, our Maker. For we are your people, and you are our God. We are, our sh- we are your sheep, and you are our shepherd. So help us as we study your word, not to harden our hearts, but to receive it with meekness. May we love your word above gold, above fine gold. May it be our delight. And so we would leave here continually meditating upon your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are going to read the whole chapter, Philippians chapter 1. And our focus will be on verses 27 to 30, but just so that we can get the context, we'll start at the beginning and and read through to the end of the chapter. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So as I said, our focus will be on verses 27 to 30. But we read the whole chapter just to get the, to understand where Paul is at in those verses. And just a brief overview of the verses we read before coming to the verses we're focusing on. In verses 3 through 8, we see Paul expressing his love for the Philippians using very various images. He's giving thanks for them. He's saying he has joy for them. He's expressing this confidence in them. And then having expressed his love... In verses 9 to 11, he then prays for them to have that same love. 12 through 14, we see Paul giving a a recounting of the circumstances that he was in. But if you notice, he didn't just say, I'm in prison, pray for me, things are horrible. Instead, he, he described the circumstances he was in and explained what God was doing in the midst of them. So we could think of it as a a theological interpretation of what was happening. He wasn't just looking at it from the surface, but he was saying, this is what God is doing in the midst of these trials I'm going through. Then 15 to 18, he says how he rejoices in the fact Christ is proclaimed, despite the fact that people, some people were proclaiming Christ because they did not like Paul, and others were proclaiming Christ because they loved Paul. To Paul, it didn't matter whether they liked him or they didn't like him. What his concern was, was that Jesus was being proclaimed. Then the last section before we get to ours is 19 to 26, where we see Paul saying that his great desire was not first and foremost to be removed from his trial, but to honor Christ in the midst of it. He said... This, this was my eager expectation and hope. What? That Christ would be honored. Not, like we would probably say, to get out of prison or to be removed from our su- suffering. 
Because when we're in trials, often our, our, our sole focus is to be removed from them. But instead, what Paul says is, no, it would be great to be delivered from prison, but my, my primary objective, my, my highest desire is that Christ would be honored that Christ will be glorified whether I am released or whether I'm not, whether I live or whether I die, that Jesus would be honored. And what an example that is for us in, in the trials we face, that our highest desire would not, not to be healed, not to have this problem fixed, but first and foremost, that Christ would be honored. Now coming to our verses 27 to 30. We will look at these verses under three headings to help us our, to structure our time together. And these three headings will be a command, a longing, and the result. So first, Paul gives a command. You can see it there in verse 27, the first part. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's the command. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now his longing, continuing in 27, he says, so that, I want you to live this life so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So a, long, uh, a command, a longing, and now the result in... The second part of 28 to the end, he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the command is to live a life worthy of the gospel, his longing was so that they would stand firm, and the result was what we'll see as a twofold sign because of a twofold gift. It was a sign both of the unbeliever's destruction and of the believer's salvation, and that because it has been granted to us as believers not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Him. So, with that as an outline, let's now look at each of these. So, first, a command. If you see in 25 and 26, Paul says that though, though he had this struggle going on, whether he, should, whether he should desire to continue to live or desire to, be, to depart and be with Christ, he says in 25 and 26 that he was convinced that he would continue to live so that he could work with the Philippians for their progress and joy. So he, he expected to be released from prison to be able to go to be with the Philippians again to encourage them in their faith. But then you see 27 begins, if you have the ESV, at least it begins with the word only. So in other words, Paul says, I'm hoping to come to you, but don't be focused on that. Don't be waiting for me to come. Don't just be sitting back and say, okay, we need to wait for Paul to get here before we can do anything. No, he says, only be focused upon this. This is to be your focus. This is to be what you're striving after, whether I come to you or not. May this be your all-consuming passion. And what was it? It was to live a life 
worthy of the gospel of Christ or to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we see here really one way to summarize the Christian life. What are we to be about as Christians? What is to be our only focus? It is to be living a life worthy of the gospel. And, and not just on Sunday, the fact that it says your manner of life makes clear what? It's to be everything we do. Every single moment of every single day, this is to be our focus. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's so important for us to be reminded of that. I actually saw that Pastor Kyle had preached through the book of Philippians not too long ago. And so <laughs> you may have come and you think, what is Pastor Carl doing there? We're back in Philippians again. <laughs> but then you realize, no, he's sick. Someone else is here. But this same topic is coming up. But what? All of us need to be reminded of this daily because it's so easy for us just to begin to live life, just to begin to live and do the day-in, day-out routine and forget, no, we have a bigger purpose with all that we're doing. Whatever our vocation may be, this is to be the all-consuming passion. This is to be what drives us. It, we may often not look very different than unbelievers from the outside. If you take a believer and an unbeliever and give them a baby with a dirty diaper, it's not going to look much different. But there ought to be a, a very big difference between the two. Because the one is just doing it, the other is doing it out of a desire to have a life worthy of the gospel. So this is to be what, what drives us. As Paul desired for the Philippians, so by implication, the Lord desires for us to have a life worthy of the gospel. To understand that, we need to, we need to remind ourselves, okay, what is the gospel, and what does it mean to live worthy of it? So with the gospel we need to realize that though there is only one true gospel, there are many false gospels. And here are just some for us to consider. The prosperity gospel says what? That Jesus came to make us happy, wealthy, and prosperous. The social gospel says that Jesus just came to do nice things. And that's in turn what we're to do. Just, just be nice people, just do nice things. The psychological gospel says that Jesus came to build up our self-esteem. That the great evil in the world is the fact that we have, have a poor image of ourselves. And so, what Jesus came to do is to show us how worthy we are. Or the political gospel, that Jesus came to establish a kingdom of this world. All of those are, are so-called gospels that we hear, but they are not the true gospel. What then is the true gospel, this gospel of which we're to live lives worthy of? And a great summary of it is 1 Timothy 1.15. So if you want to turn there to see, it's actually there. Or write it down to, to check later. But in, in 1 Timothy, in this section, Paul is a given... Uh, giving a, a testimony of who he was, but of what Christ has done. And in 115, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. So very clear there, it tells us why Jesus came into the world. Why did he come? Not first and foremost to make us wealthy or just to do nice things or to build up our self-esteem or to establish this earthly kingdom, but instead Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. So the gospel tells us what? That we are great sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. And it is He who calls us to come to Him for rest, to call, calls us to come to Him for eternal life. So that is, very briefly, what, is, what this true gospel is of which we're to live lives worthy. What then does it mean to live worthy of it? Again, looking at what this does not mean, and then looking at what this does mean. What it does not mean when we say to live life, a life worthy of the gospel is it, mean, it does not mean that we, we earn the benefits of the gospel by our lives. Because Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 declares what? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to live worthy of the gospel does not mean we're earning the gospel because the gospel is freely given to us. It also means that we do not live the reality of the gospel. You'll hear people say sometimes that you're to preach the gospel continually and what? If necessary, use words. But you cannot actually live the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is good news about what Christ has done. So the gospel is this historical event, this historical uh, truth, this proclamation of what Christ has done for us. So we cannot actually live it because it's a historical event. So to live a life worthy of the gospel doesn't mean we earn it. It doesn't mean we live it. What then does it mean? It means that we live in response to it, we live in accordance with it, and we live in such a way so as to honor it. So to live worthy of the gospel means we're responding to what God has done for us. You can think in this regard of Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 through 2, having described all that God has done for us in Christ, what does Paul then say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says, in light of all that God has done for us, this is how we are to live. We are to give ourselves to God because of what He has done for us. So to live worthy of the Gospel means we live in response to it, It also means we live in accordance with it. So though we cannot live the gospel, the gospel does have implications for our lives. And as we said, it has implications for every area of our life. So we could could look here at all kinds of very concrete examples from our finances to work to relationships to sexuality to our attitudes all, all of those areas the gospel has implications for. 
the gospel should impact all of those areas of our lives. We cannot say that that this area is impacted by the gospel, but not this area. To live worthy of the gospel is to have every single aspect of our life influenced by it. And last, it means so as to live to honor it. If you have the ESV, you can see in in Philippians 1.27 that there's a footnote. It has a little number, then down at the bottom, uh, for for the phrase, a manner manner of life worthy of the gospel, it says down there in Greek, it's only behave as citizens worthy. So the idea is that we're citizens of God's kingdom, and as citizens of God's kingdom, there's a particular way in which we should live. Similarly, over in chapter 3, if you look there in Philippians 3, starting in 17... Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So he describes here two groups of people. There's the people of the earth and there's the people of heaven. And those who are citizens of heaven have a different way of life. And the same idea Paul is is describing in chapter 1 where he says, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're to live in such a way so as to show people the greatness of that kingdom. We're to live worthy of it. We're to live in a way that's reflective of it. When we're citizens of a, of a country and we go to a different country, we are representatives in a sense, especially if you're an um, ambassador, you are the representative of that country. So people interpret your country based upon what they see in you. And so in the same way as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to live in a way that's reflective of those who belong to that kingdom. So here's the command, is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Second now is Paul's longing. Why did Paul desire for the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel? Continuing now in Philippians, he says, So that, in the second part of verse 27, So that, whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So here was Paul's longing. This is what he desired for them to stand firm, for them to strive, and for them not to be frightened. And you can see, with each of these, the emphasis upon the the corporate unity. Notice how he says that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. 
So it's not just that as individuals we're to live lives worthy of the gospel, but that as a, as a body, as a, as, a, as a corporate unity, we're to be living this life. Now that, that emphasis on, on unity, we won't focus on because that's really what Paul goes on to describe in chapter 2. What we'll, what we'll focus on is, is this standing firm and striving and not being frightened. It's, it's hard to tell, at least in the, in the English Standard Version, but here Paul is not giving three separate longings, but really one longing with two explanations. So he's not saying my longing is that you would, you would stand, you would strive, and you would not be frightened, but rather that you would stand firm, and here are two ways in which you'll do that. So his, his longing was that they would stand firm. And what would that standing firm look like? It would look like them striving for the faith of the gospel and them not being frightened by their opponents. And you can see how there is a, a positive, offensive way we stand firm. And there's also a negative, defensive way. So the positive, offensive, the way we're we're seeking to advance the gospel is how we're striving for it. And how is it that we are defending the gospel is we're not being frightened by our opponents. So as we strive, we gain ground. And as we're not frightened, we don't lose the ground we've gained. What do each of those things look like? What does it look like to strive for the gospel? It looks like us preserving and defending it. And it looks like us proclaiming and advancing it. I actually, with this, with this idea of preserving the gospel, I remember when Pastor Kyle came and spoke at, at Linden in the evening one Sunday. And he gave, he preached through Galatians, and then at the, it sounded like at the last, the last sermon, he gave sort of an overview of the applications that you could draw from the book. And one of those was on this idea of preserving the gospel. And he said how we, we should long that people would go to the nations, would leave their home. And if I'm not doing this exactly, it's been a while since he was there, but I think this is the, the, the gist of it. So that, that people would go to the nations, that we would leave our homes, leave our families, and go, go to other places to proclaim the gospel. But he said that's not the case for everyone. What some of us are called to do is simply preserve the gospel for the next generation. And he, he was describing that, or teaching that, from Galatians chapter 2, where Paul confronts Peter because he began to live in a way that wasn't reflective of the gospel he proclaimed. And, and so he confronted Peter about that, but that's actually not what this, this is on. The, the preserving the gospel, sorry... Is, is from Galatians 2, but it's with regard to Titus being circumcised. And he said we didn't yield on that. Why? So that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. You can see that in Galatians 2, verse 5. How he said we refused to let this happen. We didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So in in this offensive striving for the faith of the gospel, part of what that means is that we're seeking to preserve the gospel. 
we're preserving it from error, and we're continually proclaiming it so that the next generation would know the Lord. I'm reading through Deuteronomy right now, and that's, that is a big emphasis there, that God desired Moses to teach the people. Why? So that they, in turn, would then go to teach their children and their children's children. So there's this offensive way in which we're striving for the, fen- for the faith of the gospel. There's also this defensive way in which we're not, we're not giving in to those who are attacking us. And this means both that no matter what we're threatened with, no matter how great a persecution we may face, we refuse to turn from Christ. And you can, if you know a voice of the martyrs where there, it's this ministry to persecuted Christians throughout the world, there's so many examples there of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are facing horrendous persecution, and yet despite that, they remain faithful to the Lord. They do not turn from Him. And by contrast, you can think about Jesus' parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow seed, and some of that seed, what happened to it? It was, it was scorched by the sun, and he says that is analogous to the person who receives the word with joy, but when trials and persecution arises, what happens? They immediately fall away. So that is what this does not look like. Not being frightened by our opponents means that no matter what they bring, we stand firm. We do not give in. Now, when we read things like this, it is, there is this temptation that we would think about people that are, are out there in full-time ministry. Because this, this striving for the faith of the gospel, this not being frightened of our opponents, can seem not really like what happens in what you could think about as ordinary Christians, people living ordinary lives that look similar to unbelievers. But the truth is, is just as we said before, this is to be happening in everything we do. All of us in our daily lives are to be standing firm. We're to be striving for the faith of the gospel, and we're not to be frightened by our opponents. So what are, what's some examples of this? Well, just one of them is, is like what Pastor Kyle had pointed out, is that daily reading our, uh, the Bible with our kids, daily instructing them, daily seeking to teach them, even if it's something small, is a way we're seeking to advance the gospel, to preserve the gospel for the next generation. Think about it if you were with a group of friends and they're discussing how what you do with your body doesn't really matter. You know, your body belongs to you, so you can do whatever you want with it. And especially it seems like as, as our children go up, if you're, if you're younger, in elementary school even, junior high and high school especially, what, are we, what do we hear is that your body belongs to you and you can do with it what you want. But what would it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel in that circumstance? Is you don't remain quiet, but instead you speak up and you say, well, you know what God says? He says that he actually owns our body. That he is the one who made it, and as a Christian, he is actually the one who redeemed my body. So he owns it. I cannot do with it what I want, but he is the one who made my body, and so he is the one who is in charge of it. 
And for all of us, just in our daily lives, standing firm means not following our passions and our pleasures, not living according to our feelings, but living according to the truth of God's Word. Because in in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about standing firm against the schemes of the devil. And in James 1, not being lured and enticed by our own desire. So refusing to live according to our feelings and instead living according to the truth of God's Word. Those are just a few examples of how this is to be worked out in in our daily lives. How do we grow in this? If we have this desire to live a life worthy of the Gospel, how do we grow? And we grow by increasingly beholding the glory of the Gospel. When we see the fact that the Gospel is is something that is wonderful, we will be driven to live lives worthy of it. So, we will strive for the faith of the Gospel. We will seek to advance the Gospel as we see the urgency of it. The fact that there is no salvation apart from Christ. We'll strive for it as we see the uniqueness of it. That the fact, as we saw, that there are many false Gospels but there's only one true Gospel. When we see the historicity of the Gospel, that it's not a myth, but it's a historical fact. The Gospel isn't just this thing that works for us. You know, if the Gospel works for you, that's great, but these things work for me. Instead, the Gospel is actually fact. It's actually historical reality. So it's not a thing that we can take or leave. It's a thing that all of us have to face. All of us have to be confronted with. We'll strive for the Gospel as we see the sufficiency of Christ. That He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. Isn't it an astounding thing that there is salvation in no one else? So no matter where we go on this world, there's only one who can save. But He is able to save. No matter who it is, anyone can come to Him. And He is able to save them. And not just save them, but then transform them. We can, we can have this sense of as we think about those examples, as we think about a co-worker we should invite out to lunch to, to ask, hey, have you heard about, about Christ? Have you heard about the fact that the resurrection isn't just this, just this myth, just this good feeling, but it's actually reality? As we think about those examples, there's, there can be this tendency for us to have fear in considering that, or can, we can have this hopelessness in feeling, uh, Satan's attacks are just too strong. We just can't, can't defeat these attacks that he's bringing. But when we remind ourselves of the sufficiency of Christ, that he doesn't just save us, but by his Spirit he sanctifies us, then we have strength. Then we remember, yes, I am able to do this. Not the little engine that could, but the little engine that couldn't, but the great God who can. And last, we'll strive for the gospel as we see the supremacy of Christ. The fact that He is worthy. He is worthy to be praised by all. So we'll strive for the faith of the gospel as, as we see the wonder of it. And we will not be frightened by our opponents. We'll stand firm against their attacks. Why? Because we see that we have a greater fear and a greater hope 
and a greater power. The, in Hebrews, we see several examples of this, of, of believers standing firm in the face of trials. Why? Because they saw the great hope they had. In Hebrews 10, 34, the author says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then we see, we see Moses, a recounting of Moses, how by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to his reward. Why do we give up the things of this world? Why, if you're a younger person, would you say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to live according to the world. I'm not going to live according to what I feel, what I desire, but I'm going to live according to the truth of God's word. Why would we do that? Because what? We see we have a greater hope. We have a greater treasure. That's what Moses, he said, I'm going to suffer reproach. I'm going to leave Pharaoh's house. I'm going to leave the house of the king of the world where I can have whatever I want. I'm going to go live in a desert with these people who are just going to complain. And, and I'm going to say, yeah, that's better. Why? Because he saw his reward. We see Paul doing the same thing in the, in the verses we read where he says what? I'm torn. I don't know if I should keep living or if I should say, yeah, Lord, take me now. But why did he have that struggle? Because he saw that it was better to die and be with Christ. May the Lord open our eyes to see the glory of who he is so that, like Martin Luther, we would say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So a command to live a life worthy of the gospel, this longing to stand firm, last now is the result. What happens when the church lives in that way? What happens when we live that type of life? You can see in the second part of 28 to the end, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So as we say, as we said before, here Paul gives a, a twofold sign because of a twofold gift. He says that when the church lives in this way, there's a twofold sign that takes place. What is that sign? It's a sign of destruction and a sign of salvation. Why? Because it has been granted to us as believers not only to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for him. So, living a life worthy of the gospel is first a sign of destruction. It is a sign to unbelievers of the fact that they will be destroyed. And not just destroyed and then everything ends, but an eternal destruction. A destruction that takes place for all of eternity. It is also, though, a sign of salvation. 
the fact that as believers, we will be saved, we will be delivered from that destruction. And why is it that way? Because it's been given to us as believers not only to suffer, not only to believe, but also to suffer. That when we suffer for Christ, it shows the fact that we have truly believed in Him. That we truly belong to Him. So when an unbeliever persecutes a believer, it shows what? That believer has truly trusted in Christ. That they truly belong to Him, and so He will welcome them into His presence forever. But that that unbeliever will be destroyed forever. And so we see here two very sobering and very humbling realities. Whether you're here today as one who has trusted in Christ, or you have come here either out of interest or just compulsion, or you were forced to come, whatever the reason, Paul is making clear here that there is a sign for us. If you are here and have not trusted in Christ, there is a clear sign to you of your destruction. And a destruction that will never end, but that will last for all of eternity. From Revelation, we hear we hear the fact of, of this. In Revelation 14, it says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his head, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There, he says, is this destruction that awaits those who have not yet trusted in Christ. That for all of eternity, there will be no rest. So may that sign then drive you to Christ, the one who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it's a sign to unbelievers, but it's also a sign to believers. It, it should break our hearts with the fact that that is the destiny of unbelievers. The way we speak about those who do not know Christ is often so indifferent or so awful. That's not the best word, but just how, how hateful we can speak about others. But instead, may it be like Paul, in, that ver- in the verses we read from, from chapter 3, he says when he thought about those who were enemies of the cross of Christ, what did he do? He wept. Just as our God in Ezekiel says what to, to the people of Israel? Turn back. Turn back. Why will you perish? So when we speak of unbelievers, may that be our heart as well, that we would have a heart of compassion that pleads with them, turn back. Why will you perish? May the Lord give us tears when we speak. And last, that it should humble us with this fact that it has been granted to us to believe and to suffer. Are we daily amazed by the fact that we believe in Christ? 
that he gave us this gift to believe in him. And as we are humbled and rejoice in that, may we also rejoice in the fact that to truly believe in Christ means that we will suffer with him as well. And just as our, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, just as we see the early disciples doing in Acts, when we suffer, may we rejoice because it shows the fact that we belong to Christ. So there we see this command to live a life worthy of the gospel. We see his longing to stand firm. And we see the result is it's a sign both of destruction and of salvation. Because of this gift that God has given to us, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us the gift of salvation. We know that we did not believe in your Son because we were smarter or we were richer or we were more powerful or more noble, but that you chose those that were low and despised and weak and poor so that we would boast in you. May it be the case, Lord, that we boast in you always and how we long in all that we do to live a life worthy of the gospel. We confess how often we fall short of that, how often we forget, how often we just begin to live life, but remind us of the wonder of what you've done for us. Open our eyes to behold the glory of your Son, the glory of your great gospel, so that we would be driven to live a life worthy of it in all that we do. How we look forward to the day when we will dwell with you forever when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. May that be our great hope. And so may we go to your son outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.